Let us read from Romans 14, 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let you regard what is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are grieved by the years-long, in some ways decades-long, crumbling of our nation. And Lord, we pray for your church. I confess I don't see a solution besides the strengthening of the church, and the strengthening of the church is going to come through the strengthening of families. Lord, I pray for our families here locally at Southside, that you would make them strong, that fathers would lead well, selflessly, would have a vision for Christ-likeness, And take steps to lead the family there, Lord. I pray for moms to be disciple makers in the home. And that you would locally transform our communities through families. But even broader, Lord, that your church would strengthen families. Therefore, we might have a brighter future. We know that the gospel in the church is ultimately the only solution to the all sorts of disarray that we see and likely will continue to see. Lord, we do pray for our governmental leaders here locally at the state level, the federal level. Give them wisdom from on high. May they lead with righteousness. Grant them that. They need it more than ever. Lord, I pray for some of our own. I pray for Jolene Day who was moved to hospice care this weekend, Lord, that you would be with her you would be especially present to her, that your spirit would minister to her, Lord, that her last days would be days of sweet fellowship with you, Lord, that you would strengthen her faith, that you would make her hope bright, Lord, give her pain-free comfort, Lord, and be with her family. May they be those that would point her to you as well. Pray for the rest of our senior citizens, Lord, some who would want to be here but have been discouraged by governing authorities, that you would help them to stay encouraged. Thank you for their love for this church and their love for one another. And we pray that they would continue to have their faith built up and we could get them here soon. And God, we pray for our hearts this morning. 
Your word is clear and we're thankful for that. I pray that we would not be defensive, but would be receptive to hear what you would have to say to us this morning. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your love to us through the gift of your word written. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Great to see you in God's providence. We're in Romans 14, which as we saw of you here last week is about division and love and acceptance in the church when it comes to gray matters, secondary issues and tertiary issues. So I'm thankful that God has left us here because in a nation that is divided, we're here talking about unity in God's good timing, disputable matters. It's important to say, though, that Paul is not a moral relativist, like so much of the air we breathe, you know, whatever's right for you works. That's not what Paul's teaching here. There are primary issues of truth and life. Paul talks about them all the time. There are primary issues that are worth fighting for, even dividing over. And Paul addresses those sorts of issues in every one of his letters, this one included. And so what are just some of those primary issues? Well, things like justification by faith alone or sexual immorality and all that that entails, the deity of Christ, who he is, his resurrection, the necessity of saving faith in Jesus Christ, the eternity of judgments, could list many more. Here's what you need to hear this morning. These chapters are not those. These are secondary matters, disputable matters, areas where strong, mature Christians can disagree. And what we're going to be talking about this morning is how they disagree that is so important. Specifically, these are about Jewish and Gentile tensions. We saw last week specifically with the issues of diets and days, but again, most of us aren't concerned with the issues of diet and days. So what for us would constitute the strong and the weak? What for us in 2020 would be issues that could potentially cause division in the church or tension in the church? Well, there's a whole lot. Let me just list a few and make everybody in the room mad. Politics. Some Christians are extremely pro-President Trump. And they would make a case for that. They would say, hey, look, look at the appointment of judges. It's so important for our future with conservative judges. And so that alone is reason enough to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, what about the one issue, right? Christians should be one issue voters. Abortion is the black eye of our nation. We cannot vote for a, a candidate that is not pro-life. Some would say, well, yeah, I don't really, I'm not necessarily pro, but it's the lesser of two evils. On the other hand, we've got your never Trumpers. And they're like, listen, you can't vote for a narcissist. You can't vote for a man that you wouldn't trust your daughter with alone in a room. Look at him. Christians can't vote for a man like that. What about the issue of alcohol? You got your teetotalers. Alcohol is absolutely not a Christian option. How could you? Look at the destruction and devastation. I had an uncle, da 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 What about those who drink in moderation? Say, listen, it's fine. It's a good gift of God. Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine. What about the consumption of media? Some Christians can never watch an R-rated movie, except for The Passion of the Christ. It's just not an option. Veggie tales are nothing. Flee worldliness. What about over here? Well, hey, don't be such a prude. God's made all things. We ought to be about celebrating the arts. Be more mature than that. Maybe not an issue for our generation as much as our parents and their parents' generation. But what about Bible translations? Anyone ever come across the KJV-only people? 
Not many. Lisa and I were driving the other day. This was in Waco, actually, and there was a church, and there were like four or five things. We preach Christ. We do this. We sing hymns, KJV only. So they're still out there. But they say the, all the other manuscripts are corrupt. You can't trust the modern translations. Don't you know that NIV is owned by Zondervan? That's owned by Rupert Mata, Mur, What's his name? Rupert Murdoch? Pagan. It's the nearly inspired version. What about dancing again? Not so much for our generation, but Baptists historically have been opposed to dancing. Do you know why Baptists are opposed to fornication? Because it might lead to dancing. What about education? You got your public school advocates. They're the way to go. They're fine. Kids need social skills. Have you seen those homeschool kids? We need to be salt and light, and we can't afford private options or homeschool. And what about sports? Then you've got your homeschool and your private school. Listen, the classes are too big. Immorality's rampant. The government's pushing their anti-God ideology through the schools. They're brainwashing them. That's why they're all falling away. You've got to be... You're responsible for educating your kids. What about your worship styles? You got your hymns only. Some of them are even psalms only. Some of them are no music whatsoever. The modern lyrics are so weak. Jesus and my boyfriend type songs. Then you got your contemporary. I can't even understand the hymns. What did that word mean? They don't make me feel warm and fuzzy like the Air One stuff does. What about Halloween? It's just costumes and candy. It's the celebration of the demonic. What about Santa? It's just fun, innocent family. It's deception and consumerism. What about gender pronouns? So maybe you've got a a transgender person and you're wanting to witness to them, but they're like, listen, I'm not even going to have a conversation with you if you don't call me by my preferred pronoun. Some of you say, you know what? That's not a big deal. I'll do that. I'll concede that to you so that I can get to the gospel. Some of you are like, no way, how dare you? You could not. I can't call something that God made different. That would be dishonoring him, dishonoring the creator. Or what about homosexual weddings? You know, maybe you've got a family member, homosexual, who invites you to the wedding. Some of you, well, I'm going to go. I've got to go. They know that I'm a Christian. They know that I don't affirm what they're doing, but I need to go because if I don't go, I will cut off all relationship and there'll be no hope for future conversation. Some of you, no, absolutely, not a chance, cannot go, not an option. That would be me affirming and approving what's going on there. Which one's right? There's not a verse for that. Talking about gray issues. What about Harry Potter? Can Christians read those books? What about yoga? Some of y'all's blood pressure is rising, isn't it? (laughs) Everybody in the room is mad about something. And that's not even it. There's also doctrinal issues, right? There are primary doctrinal issues, and then there are secondary doctrinal issues and tertiary doctrinal issues. So, again, some of the primary ones, the the things that the church has always historically believed, found in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And then for us Protestants, Baptists, justification by faith, the gospel. Again, everyone, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the necessity of faith in, in Jesus. Secondary issues could be things like Speaking in tongues or the gift of prophecy or a certain view of the millennium, certain view of eschatology or the way we structure the church. Is it elder-led or deacon-led or senior pastor-led or Episcopal or Presbyterian or what about baptism? Do we only baptize adults or do we baptize babies as well? And listen, Protestants really haven't done a good job here. We are very fragmented. We have been too quick to divide over secondary and tertiary issues. And man, Baptists might be the worst. 
We do a lot of church planting. When something goes wrong, we just start a new one. So we got First Baptist Church, Second Baptist Church, Third Baptist Church, Primitive Baptist Church, Progressive Baptist Church, Free Will Baptist Church, Pentecost Free Will Baptist Church, Reformed Baptist Church, American Baptist Church, National Baptist Church, Missionary Baptist Church, Independent Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Church, Cooperative Baptist Churches, Conservative Baptist Churches, and Seventh-day Baptist Churches, and I could probably go on. So how do we respond? Well, here at Southside, we want to be a convictional people. I want you to have strong opinions about biblical issues, even secondary and tertiary issues. But we've got to major on the majors. And when we disagree, we want to disagree well. We want to disagree in love, disagree like we would a family because we are a family. One of our core values, we are in authentic community, which is hard because it's hard to be authentic. It means we have to work through issues. Have hard conversations. Be humble. Seek reconciliation and repentance. So meet me in Romans 14. It's really just an extension of what we've seen. Really, 14.1 all the way to 15.7 is a unit of thought. And last week, the main point was accept the weak. This week, again, they're weak and they're strong. They should welcome one another. They should not judge one another. They shouldn't even cause one another to stumble, Paul's going to tell us. So let's walk through this passage. Romans chapter 14 starting in verse 13. Therefore, let's just stop there. Really important word, right? What's the therefore, therefore? It's a connecting word, and it's connecting everything that he said already in chapter 14. So he's going to sum up what he said in verses 1 to 12. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So after he summarizes everything he said so far, he wants us to know, that's the summary, is, is don't cause one another to stumble. And he wants us to know he is not weak in faith. Paul's not. Paul's one of the strong. He knows that nothing is unclean by itself. It was under the Old Covenant, right? There's all kinds of laws in the Old Covenant that showed clean and unclean. But the Apostle Paul knows, as he's even said in Romans, we as Christians are not under the Jewish law anymore. Romans 6.14, we're not under law but under grace. Romans 7.6, we've died to the law, now we have the Spirit. Paul knows that, obviously. He's taught that. And that was a very important issue in the whole coming of the New Covenants. We're not under the law anymore. It was a big deal. It was a really big deal, right? Do you remember the vision that God gave Peter in Acts chapter 10? Peter's up on the roof and he's praying and his stomach starts to growl. So he's getting hungry and the Lord provides a meal. He drops this big old tablecloth down and it's got all kinds of animals on it. Some clean, some unclean. And Jesus tells Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, 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 I can't. I've never eaten these, these animals. I've never eaten anything unclean. And Jesus says, what I've called clean, you do not call unclean. What I've called clean, you do not call common. That happens three times, probably for a couple reasons. Number one, Peter can be a little bit dull. We know that. But second, it was such a big deal. Peter, his whole life, thought it meant, thought that avoiding certain foods straight out of the book of Leviticus was honoring God. And now all of a sudden, he can pick up the shrimp and the bacon. That was a big deal. So it happens three times. And then in Acts chapter 11, Peter then goes and tells the apostles. So we just hear this story again and again and again in the book of Acts. There's nothing unclean in itself. The new covenant is here. 
Jesus taught it. Peter saw it. Paul knew it. I know and am persuaded by the Lord that nothing is unclean, he says. And I think he's probably thinking of Jesus' very clear teaching on this. Let me read from Mark chapter 7. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And here's a really important parenthetical comment that Mark gives us. Thus he declared all foods clean. In other words, the new covenant is here. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, and notice Jesus' view of mankind here. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. You turn on the news lately, Jesus knew what he was talking about. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Notice those were all actions, by the way. And Jesus says they come from the heart. All sin starts at the heart level. Jesus says, not what goes in, that makes you unclean. All foods are now clean. Jesus taught it. Peter saw it. Paul had taught this in 1 Corinthians 8. Let me read verses 8 and 9. Food will not commit us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So all things are clean. But notice, some things are unclean. What did he say? He said, if someone thinks something is unclean, then for them, it is. Paul doesn't want us violating our conscience. That's what he's going to say in Romans 14, 23 as well. Look over there. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating's not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you're doing something and it's against your conscience, you're not acting in faith, you're not acting from conviction, but against your conscience, then it's wrong and you shouldn't do it. Your conscience is really important. You should not violate your conscience. You hear that? Follow it. Because what happens is we sear it if we don't heed it. We harden it if we don't heed it. Don't violate your conscience. Paul would say don't violate the conscience of other people, but educate your conscience. Which is why Paul says they're weak in faith. That's why he and Jesus disagree with the way they're living. He disagrees, but in these types of secondary matters, he's going to disagree with love and gentleness and deference. Give verse 15. For if your brothers grieve by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Here we are again, back to love. Giving of self for the good of another. If your weaker brother or if your weaker sister is grieved by the way you use your freedom in Christ, stop doing it in front of them. You're no longer acting in love when you do that. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Here in this context, I think the word for destroy is just the opposite of building up. 
Instead of building them up and encouraging them, you're tearing them down. You're damaging their walk. Don't do that. Why? He says, because Christ died for them. Jesus shed his blood for these people. Jesus gave up his life for them. You can't give up your freedom. Even when you're in the right. And again, the strong are right here. Nothing's unclean. Let me flip over to 1 Timothy 4. Listen to this. Now, notice the false teachers that are coming in here, what they teach. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What are they teaching? They forbid marriage. And they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and by prayer. They're right. The strong are right. But they should not therefore just shrug their shoulders and say, you know what? They'll get over it. That's their fault. No. Enjoy your freedom by all means. But don't rub it in the faces of the weak. Major on the majors. That's what he says in verse 17. For because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's being a little bit sarcastic here. What is the kingdom about? Well, it's not about food. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. Paul doesn't use the terminology of kingdom that often, but if you read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you see it all the time, don't you? Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Well, Paul obviously believed in the kingdom. He just used different terms to describe it. He talked about righteousness and peace and justification, new creation and, and new covenants. And a lot of people think that this is our righteousness, like how we live, and our peace, like subjective inner peace. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here, mostly from what we've seen in Romans so far. When he talks about righteousness, it's the same root for justification. It's the right standing that we don't have that God gives to us. And the peace is not so much how we feel, but the peace with God that we so desperately needed. Flip back a couple pages of Romans 5, we'll see that. It uses the same terms. What's the kingdom about? Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's righteousness and there's peace right there. Peace with God. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. There's same root as joy, joy the Holy Spirit brings. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Spirit brings joy. You know, self-righteous people have no joy, do they? They're constantly just looking at others and picking and being cynical. It's really rooted in insecurity. Because they don't understand that righteousness doesn't come from the self. It comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see here that this is really a gospel issue. Like I said last week, they forgot justification by faith alone. The spirit brings joy. And part of the joy is knowing where our righteousness comes from. Knowing where our peace comes from. So we're not looking and judging everyone who doesn't disagree with us. We know we're no better than anybody. So if it's a gospel issue, it, it informs not only our content, but our posture. We know that it's only by the grace of God that we are who we are. And even the fact that we know better, it's not because you're smarter. God's just been gracious to you to enlighten you, to reveal himself more to you and reveal his word. 
The person who gets the gospel, there is joy because there's just this freedom. They're not worried about posturing themselves above others. And then that informs how they talk about secondary and tertiary issues. They major on what matters. Do not overestimate the importance of secondary opinions. And do not underestimate the importance of the kingdom. Kingdom-minded people do not treat others with contempt over petty squabbles. Look at Romans 14, 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What does he say? Serve Christ. Serve the Lord. When you do that, you're going to please God and you're even going to please man. Get both in. So pursue it. Pursue what makes for peace. The NIV says, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace. Is that us, church? Are we making effort to what leads to peace and a mutual upbuilding? It's really what he said in chapter 12, verse 18. Look across the page. Two qualifications. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. The goal is harmony around Christ and his mission. The goal is unity around the lordship of Jesus Christ. So let us pursue what makes for peace. You know, this is a really good slogan for the way we use social media. Social media has become so toxic, hasn't it? People can get so ugly behind a screen that they would never talk to you that way face to face. This ought to be all of us. We ought to ask, whatever I'm about to post, will it lead to peace and mutual upbuilding? Or am I just seeking to tear down and exalt myself? It's a really good question. Our tone, our content. And this is hard because we need to be truth tellers. This is the balance we've got to find. Especially when you're right. Paul's so instructive here because he was right. These others are weak in faith and yet he still wants to put them first. He still has a proper perspective. He cares about them. He's He's, he's placed the church above his own rightness. Notice in verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. He says it again. Don't violate your conscience, but inform your conscience. But it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. The work of God here, I think, is the church. By your freedom, by your rightness, don't damage the church. Don't damage weaker brothers and sisters. The blood-bought, spirit-filled community of Christ. Don't destroy the work of God over food. It's the same thing that he really said in Romans 12, 15. Look at that again. I mean, 14, 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't cause your faith family to stumble by your freedom. Don't be that selfish. Be selfless. Again, it's the same thing he says in 1 Corinthians 8, dealing with a similar but different issue. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 8, 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers... And wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, 
lest I make my brother stumble. So he's not going to eat meat. He's just going to forego it. He's going to eat it at home. It's not worth it, he says. But he adds here wine in verse 21. It's better not to drink wine. Now, you want to get some Baptists riled up, start talking about alcohol. You know, Jews don't recognize the Messiah. Protestants don't recognize the Pope. Baptists don't recognize each other in the beer aisle. Some of you were all too eager to put on a mask because you went to the grocery store the last few weeks. And listen, the Bible clearly condemns drunkenness without hesitation or reservation. But it doesn't condemn drinking in moderation. Paul himself will tell Timothy, hey, drink a little wine. It's good for your stomach. And Psalm 104 celebrates it as a gift of God. God gave wine to gladden the heart of man, it says. So Paul's not against drinking in moderation. He's against drunkenness, Ephesians 5.18, but not drinking in moderation. But notice here in the church in Rome, there were people that had an issue with drinking in moderation. There were some teetotalers in the church in Rome. And so what does he tell the members of that church to do? It is good not to drink wine if it causes your brother to stumble. But he expands it. Or to do anything that causes them to stumble. Put others first. Again, the driving principle here is are we loving one another? Are we giving of self? Are we putting away our rights for the good of someone else because of the cross? Love wants the best for others. Love puts them first. Again, that's why Romans chapter 12, verse 9 starts the way it does. Let love be genuine. It's the header for all that we've been talking about. And he, he dips back in again halfway through in Romans 13, 8. Love your neighbor. Love does no harm to a neighbor. And then we're going to see that, again, love is defined by Jesus. We're going to see that next week. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Why? Verse 3, because for Christ did not please himself. That's the reason why. We love like Christ loved us. And he had rights and he had freedom and he gave it up and he died on the cross for scoundrels like us. That's what it's about. It's about selfless love, self-giving love. I keep mentioning 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, 11 because it's really similar to Romans 14. It's just a different issue. There was meat that had been offered to idols and then sold in the marketplace. And so some Christians were like, yeah, I can't deal with that. That's been polluted. And some Christians were free and they were strong in this case. It doesn't matter. Cook the steak. There are no gods. Who cares? What's the ending conclusion that Paul gives? It's very similar. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I, I do everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. And there's a bad chapter break because 11 verse 1 says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ." Why should we adopt this posture? Because Jesus adopted this posture and we need to follow our Lord. So enjoy your freedom. That's not the message here. Enjoy your freedom. Eat your bacon-wrapped shrimp and drink your shiner and observe your days to the glory of God. But if there are more sensitive consciences, more scrupulous believers present, leave it at home, he says. Keep it between you and God. What he could say in this context to his Gentiles is, hey, eat your bacon. Just don't bring your BLT to Jewish home group. You're going to cause unnecessary offense. Don't do that. Don't flaunt your freedom. You have the freedom. Don't flaunt it and tear down the church. Give of self. 
really good summary verse of this whole thing comes in Galatians 5. In Galatians, it's been about the gospel. It's been about justification by faith alone. At the end, he says, you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. You're called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And I think the idea there is you're free. Just don't use your freedom for yourself. Then he says, rather in love become slaves of one another. It's one of my favorite passages. Most English translations say serve one another to try to be politically correct. There's a difference in the words for serve and slave, though. Serves voluntarily give of themselves. Slaves are owned by people. Notice what the verse says. Use your freedom, not for you, but rather in love become slaves of one another. So paradoxical. It only makes sense in the church. You're free. What do you use your freedom with? You use your freedom to become slaves for the benefit of another church member. And again, it doesn't mean we don't talk about it. It doesn't mean we don't disagree. You need to have convictions. Oh, incredibly today, especially today. We're so soft today. Have your convictions. You need to have biblically informed convictions about all things, bringing a worldview to bear on everything. Just do so when you discuss with differences with humility and with grace and with patience and with deference. The real test of spiritual maturity is how we express our concerns with those we don't agree with. And this is not easy, church. I feel like we will always be growing in this, but here's the goal. Let's strive to grow in this area. We've got to balance liberty and love, and it is complicated. We will err, and we fall back to the gospel of grace. But here's what we need to hear from this passage. Is showing love is better than being right when it comes to disputable matters. Again, it's hard to beat the way Augustine summarized that he said, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, freedom, and in all things, charity, self-giving love. May God give us the grace and maturity to grow toward that end. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that will apply this and shape us, promises to finish the work that you've begun. And I do pray that we would grow in both our understanding and our experience of the grace of Jesus. Judgmentalism and self-righteousness are gospel issues and we're all prone to it. We all wanna elevate ourselves above other people so that we might feel good about ourselves. We all wanna put others down. We all wanna find little small areas that we can dismiss others by to make us feel righteous, Lord. Maybe be a people of repentance and would only find our righteousness in Christ then that would inform and motivate how we treat others, Lord. May we be a people of strong convictions at Southside Baptist Church. High, high view of the word and its implications, but also a family and able to discuss secondary and tertiary matters with grace, love, humility, and self-deference. Lord, help us to that end. Forgive us when we fail you. Form a Christ-shaped community, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.